This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Mary Ruart, Ph.D., the author of Death by Regulation how we were robbed of a golden age of health and how we can reclaim it is standing by. In hour two, John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian magic and the occult roots of the modern world with Jason Louv. All right, that's uh, what's in store. Now, again this week, I am coming to you from my home studio up in Thornhill. So Ian Robertson is behind the audio board in the Zoomerplex studio. And live stream producer Ryan White is at his place in East York. Albert once again has the night off. Uh, next week, a special tribute to Nils Hammerin of End Times Press. Some of you may remember Nils. He was a, a good friend of the program. And he also ran a small publishing company out of Somerville, New Jersey called End Times Press. In fact, his book, Seal of the End Times, holds a a special place of distinction in my library just behind me. Uh, Nils passed away in April. He was a frequent guest in the early years of my broadcasting career at another radio station, and he appeared in an episode of my television program, The Conspiracy Show. I believe that was in season one. We did an episode with Nils. Uh, It was very uh, sad to hear of his passing again back in April. So next week... I'll dip into the archives and replay, I believe it was my last interview with Nils Hamron. All right, this hour, there are serious problems inside the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. In fact, it's been going on for quite some time. In particular, changes to the FDA Act way back in 1962, which have caused the premature death of about half of the Americans who have died since then. Just think about that. This, according to my guest, Mary J. Ruart, PhD, is a research scientist, ethicist, 
and a libertarian author activist. Her internet column, Ask Dr. Ruart, is a popular feature of the Advocates for Self-Government Liberator Online e-zine. Her book, Short Answers to, to uh, the Tough Questions, is based on these and other questions she's received over the years. Uh, Dr. Ruart was an adjunct professor or associate professor of biology at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. During that time, she served with the Center for Applied and Professional mm-hmm. Ethics, designing a medical research and ethics course from the university. Currently, Dr. Ruart serves as chair of Liberty International and a secretary of the Foundation for a Free Society. She's been an at-large member of the Libertarian National Committee, served on the board of both the Heartland Institute, the Michigan chapter, and the Fully Informed Jury Amendment Association. And she is the author of Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. Mary J. Ruart, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you so much for having me on the show. My pleasure, and thanks for joining us. So let's go back to uh, 1962. What changed at the Food and Drug Administration that has caused, for example, such long delays in in bringing new and advanced medicines uh, to the market uh, has caused the, the, the price of many pharmaceuticals to skyrocket? What changed back in 62? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, there was a drug disaster in Europe uh, with the drug thalidomide, which was a safer sleeping drug for adults, but it wasn't safe for the unborn. And young women began taking it during pregnancy because they felt that it helped with their morning sickness. And about 10,000 European babies were born uh, missing a limb or two, or actually died. And so this was very distressing. The American public found out about it because Life magazine ran a whole spread on these poor, unfortunate children. And so Congress passed the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act, which were supposed to make drugs safer, but they really weren't designed for that. They had been floating around in Congress for quite some time, about three years, I think. And when these amendments passed, they were very open-ended. So what happened was that they kind of metastasized and continue to do so today. And what I mean by that is they really empowered the regulators and set up the incentives so that regulators want drug companies to do more and more and more testing. So it used to take, before these amendments, it used to take about four years to get a new drug from the lab bench, the marketplace. By the end of uh, the 90s, it was taking close to 14 years, in other words, an extra 10 years for a new drug to get to market. And of course, a lot of people died waiting. I was working with the AIDS drugs at that time, and the AIDS patients knew they couldn't wait. So what they did is they started importing drugs from overseas that they thought might help them, They started taking a lot of nutritional supplements, and in addition, they took the drugs that we were working on in the pharmaceutical firms, and they had a black market chemist make them, and they distributed them throughout the AIDS community. So by the time the FDA actually gave us permission to test them in people, every AIDS patient in the country who wanted them had already had them 
and they were resistant. So we had to wait for new AIDS patients to be diagnosed before we could do the FDA-mandated testing. So, so beginning in 62, because of this... Of what happened. Right. So obviously the intention back in 62, particularly with the, the case with thalidomide, uh, the drug thalidomide, uh, I mean, that was a success for them in the, in the sense that they, they obviously uh, prevented a tremendous tra- a t- uh, tragedy in, in North America, although there were a few cases because some of the samples of the drug got out. But they used that as sort of their example of this is why we need more regulation. And so they kind of cast too wide a net. Is that the idea? Yes. Yes, because actually they, the FDA was already strong enough to keep it off the market in the U.S., and it did so, not because it suspected there was a problem with pregnancies, but because thalidomide, like all drugs, had another side effect, uh, you know, because all drugs have side effects. And, and the side effect they were looking at was a type of nerve, nerve damage. So the examiner was concerned about that, and so she withheld approval. You have another example uh, in the book about a a, a breast screen a breast a breast cancer screening kit uh, that that should have been widely available and could have prevented many many uh, breast cancer deaths. Uh, talk to me about that. Yes, well that that was a device. It was basically a silicone um, pad, I guess you could call it, that a woman would put over her breast. And when she did her self-examination, it would make it a lot more sensitive. It was, she, she was able to feel better if she had a lump. So this was very a very big discovery. It was made in the United States, but it was in Europe, I think, almost 10 years before it was available here in the U.S., and that was because the FDA is even harder on devices than it is on drugs. So consequently... It was a real battle to get this on the market. When it was on the market, it was by prescription only. And so, you know, women who might have been able to discover a problem uh, really didn't have that option with this really wonderful device that, that made it much easier to be kept on. Why would a device uh, be held to sort of the same regulatory regime as a drug. I mean, a, de- a device like that, unless I'm missing something, wouldn't have some unintended, con- or a unintended consequence or wouldn't have a side effect, would it? Well, the FDA said it would have a side effect, and the side effect they said it would have is that women would do the breast exam with the silicone pad, and if they missed something, they would have a false sense of security. But, of course, women do breast exams all the time if they're, you know, if they're taking care of themselves properly because, of course, that's what you do. And and a lot of women discover those lumps. So having a device that makes it easier to detect them isn't going to change anything because, you know, I I say it will only change it for the better, I should say, because if a woman is examining her breast and she can't feel the lump uh, with her fingers, but she can feel it with this device, <laughs> she's obviously uh, going to be in better shape than if she uses the device. But sometimes the logic that we hear from the FDA doesn't seem to be what we would call common sense. Mary J. Ruert, Ph.D., is the author of Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. 
uh, now that very sort of explosive um, a comment off the top about half the deaths since 1962 uh, can be premature deaths can be attributed to overregulation by the FDA. Is I mean, is that accurate? I mean, how did you determine that? Well, there's a lot of studies published about the pharmaceutical industry. So what I did is I collected these studies and just put them together, and that's what you come up with because we have a pretty good idea of how many lives the drugs that are currently on the market save. And so if you apply that to the 10-year wait, basically, that we have today, and I, I did it decade by decade, so because it you know, wasn't the same every decade, you can calculate right. how many people die waiting. It's about 15 million people. But the even bigger problem, of course, is the loss of innovation. And depending on how you calculate that, I, I was very conservative. You know, I said, well, let's assume that the drugs we've lost are only 25% as effective as the ones we have on the market. And let's assume we've only lost 50% of them. Again, that's a conservative estimate because the studies show that we lose 50% of our new drugs at uh, mid midpoint or late stage development because the drug manufacturer realizes they aren't going to recover the development cost. So if you take that, that's another 27 million people. And then if you look at how many people died because the FDA didn't allow aspirin manufacturers to advertise in the late 60s that aspirin could prevent heart attacks, that's another 2 million people. So you add that all up and you come out with um, about half the people who have died have lost 11 years of their lives. Or another way of thinking of it is that we're all losing about 5.5 years of our lives just for the impact on drugs. But there's an even bigger impact than that, which I cannot calculate because the studies haven't been done yet. But that's Mary, I'll get you to hold on to that. I'll get you to hold on to that last uh, little bit. This is absolutely astounding the way you've broken this down. Uh, and and tragic, to say the least. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss um, Mary J. Ruert's work, Death by Regulation. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, John D. and the Empire of Angels with author Jason Louvre. Right now we're talking with Mary J. Ruart. And uh, we are talking about overregulation at the F- U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, and how, well, in fact, there's a chapter um, about this in the book, how the amendments are a cure worse than the disease. And uh, she was citing some examples of how regulation has prevented certain uh, medical devices and drugs from getting to market quick enough. Uh, and then the Absolutely devastating statistics uh, where uh, approximately one half of all of the premature 
premature deaths in the United States since 1962 can be attributed uh, to overregulation at the FDA, which, again, prevents uh, innovation, prevents uh, uh, new drugs getting to market quickly enough uh, to save perhaps millions of people. Um, You were talking about uh, innovation and, and how of these regulations prevent new drugs from getting to market. Is there an example for uh, uh, of, a, of a drug that has been approved, let's say, maybe even here in Canada or in, in Europe, uh, and it seems to be effective, but it's not available to Americans because of the FDA? Well, actually, I think there's a number of them. But the, the real problem is that when we lose innovation in the U.S., we lose it throughout the world, and that's because about 50% of new drugs are discovered in the U.S. So let me give you an example from my own experience. I actually got a call from the FDA one day, and they said, Dr. Ruar, we are very excited because we understand you filed a patent for prostaglandins and liver disease. Now, prostaglandins are a natural substance, a natural hormone that every cell in our body makes. And the company I was working for, Upjohn, was you know, very much into these things. And so I said, yes, that's true. I have filed for that patent. And they said, we are so excited because there's nothing for liver disease. 100,000 people die every year of it, and we really want to help you get this drug to market. But the problem was that we still had to meet the regulatory demands. And one of those demands is that we have two U.S. studies that have a certain statistical significance. And the problem when you have something really new is that you don't know how much drug you have to give, you don't know how often you have to give it, and so and you don't know how many people you need in the study, you don't know how long you need to treat. You know, because liver disease comes about slowly. It usually takes years, and so it's probably going to take years to cure. Well, if you don't know those things and you don't guess right the first time, what happens is you don't get the statistical significance and you have to start all over. And we figured out that if we had to do that for this drug, that by the time we got it to market, it would go generic the first day and we'd never recover our development costs. So we never even started developing it. And recall that earlier I was saying that a lot of drugs, about 50% of them, drop out in late-stage or mid-stage development when the company's already spent millions and millions of dollars trying to get it to market. So that really means we're probably losing about 80% of our innovation, which is huge. And, of course, when I estimated for the book, I was very conservative. I used 50%, not 80%. And I used, uh, I, I, I used the estimate that they were only 25% as effective as what we have on the market now. So if 27 million Americans have died because of the loss of innovation, that's a very conservative estimate. It's probably more than that. Each of us are probably losing five to ten years of our lives from these regulations. Right. And if, if this wasn't all bad enough and, and dire... Uh, you point out in your book that not only do these amendments uh, restrict new development and make it almost impossible to get new innovative drugs onto the market and new medical devices, but the amendments also restrict information about 
disease prevention. In fact, you cite examples where the FDA has actually raided stores and physicians' office who are promoting prevention. That's right. That's right. It's, the, the amendments have shifted our whole medical paradigm from inexpensive prevention to expensive treatment. And ironically, you know, we talked about earlier how these amendments were passed to prevent thalidomide-like damage in children. But it, the amendments actually created the American thalidomide because what happened was we knew in the early 80s that taking folic acid in the first month or two of pregnancy could almost totally prevent neural tube defects, which is a type of birth defect that really leaves the child crippled or, or the child dies. And because we can test for it in the uterus, when parents find out that their child has this defect, they often abort. So what happened is the folic acid manufacturers, of course, wanted to tell the American public about this wonderful thing. And, and folic acid is a B vitamin for those of your listeners who might not know that. And, and so it's, you know, it's, it's something your body is used to seeing. Well, <laughs> the FDA told the folic acid manufacturers that they'd be prosecuted if they told the American public about this. And then in the early 90s, the Center for Disease Control, which is another government agency, started actually making that recommendation to young women that they take folic acid regularly because, you know, you have to have it usually before you know you're pregnant. By the time you go to the doctor, it's a little late. So the FDA told the folic acid manufacturers that if they even mentioned the Center for Disease Control's recommendation, they would be prosecuted. And then a few years later, the FDA actually started requiring cereal manufacturers and, and other manufacturers of, you know, grain products to fortify their products with folic acid. So the FDA knew that this would prevent birth defects, but the problem is with fortification is you don't know how much you're getting. So American women were not getting the amount they needed, and it showed up in the study, you know, the change in the number of birth defects was not that great. Um, on the other hand, in some other countries in Europe where the folic acid manufacturers could advertise or the government advertise, the number of these neural tube defects dramatically dropped. So I estimate at least 10,000, perhaps as many as 25,000 American babies were born either with these horrific birth defects needlessly or they were aborted. And so we have our own American thalidomide, thanks to the 1962 amendment. The the FDA, uh, I mean, does it have congressional oversight? Uh, and and uh, if so, where is it? <laughs> well, it has congressional oversight, but the problem is that every drug has a potential side effect. And so... What usually happens is if one of these side effects comes to the attention of the American public, Congress beats up on the FDA. So the FDA has learned that really, if it's supposed to only approve safe and effective drugs, it probably shouldn't approve anything. And luckily, they don't take that position. But what they do do is they keep asking for more and more and more studies. So not only does the time it takes to get the drug to market increase, but the cost 
is going up exponentially. You know, manufacturers have a real desire to keep that timeline short because the patent's going to run out, so they want to get the drug on the market quickly. And so they've managed to keep that timeline down to about 13 years. But the costs are not kept down. They are increasing exponentially every year. And so at this point in time, I'm estimating that we're paying 20 to 40-fold as much as we should at the pharmacy today simply because of these amendments. And as I mentioned earlier, they don't make drugs safer. The, the rate of withdrawal of approved drugs after the amendments was about 3.3%. Before the amendments, it was 25 <laughs> So, you know, the, the withdrawal rate hasn't gone down, and that was the promise of the amendments, that the drugs that came to the market would be safer, and so you wouldn't have to withdraw as much. And that hasn't happened. Well, the, the actual studies on the efficacy and safety of a drug, who is now responsible for those studies? Is it the drug companies themselves? And if so, I would think that would be a problem. Well, yes, they've always been the ones responsible. The FDA just tells the drug companies which studies to do. And then it looks over the data that the companies submit. Now, Obviously, it would be better to have third-party testing, and that's what I recommend in Death by Regulation, because if you have third-party testing, you know, you don't have this conflict of interest going on. Uh, but I have to say, having worked in the drug company, it's not that easy to fudge the data because so many people are handling it. You know, for sure there'd be a whistleblower. But the big problem really is that these studies really are not helping us, as, as illustrated by the fact that the withdrawal rate hasn't gone down. If anything, it's gone up, but I don't really think those numbers are that different. So if, if we haven't improved the withdrawal rate, then we've, we're wasting all our time and money doing these studies that don't do any better uh, than, you know, it did before the amendment. Now, some other countries are smarter about the way they go about it because they know that no matter how many studies are done, there will be side effects because we can't, we simply don't have the knowledge to predict them all. So what they do is instead of asking for more and more and more studies before the approval, they tend to look at what happens in patients after the drug is approved. They try to really keep good tabs on that. And if they see a problem, then they know to take the drug off the market quickly. But in the meantime, uh, Europeans are getting new drugs faster than we are because they get through the process quicker because they don't ask for all these extra studies up front. So, you know, that's a better way to do it, and that's not what we're doing here. You say that the FDA refuses to obey court orders. Uh, what do you mean by that, and, and, and if you could maybe cite an example? Sure. Well, you know... You know, people were very frustrated about this folic acid situation, for example, and some other ones, too, um, showing that fish oil could be helpful and, and things like that. So they actually, uh, a bunch of consumer groups actually sued the FDA on the grounds that, you know, this information was truthful and should be available to people. But what ended up happening was, even though the court said yes, the FDA has to allow these truthful statements, 
and the court ordered the FDA to work with these groups on getting those statements. The FDA refused to do it. So they were hauled back into court a second time. And the court really scolded them and said, you know, you know, either you guys are really, um, you're really negligent here or you're just not paying attention. You know, you're not listening to what I'm saying. And so, you know, the court, court was very upset. But one of the things the FDA has going for it, it has our tax dollars. So if it doesn't like what it's hearing, it keeps going back and appealing rulings until it gets what it wants. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what happened with the cancer patients. You know, they did not want to go through what the AIDS patients went through. They didn't want to go to the black market for their drugs. So they sued the FDA and said it's our constitutional right to try to save our lives even if we have to use unapproved drugs. And at first the court said, yes, we agree with you. And then the FDA asked the court to reconsider their opinion. And so they did. And this time the courts ruled that Americans do not have the constitutional right to try to save their lives with unapproved drugs. And that is obviously that's that's precedent now, right? So, I mean, yeah. how 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 high up the chain did that go? Did that go to the the the, the Supreme Court? No. What happened is the um, it was appealed. The cancer patients appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. So the lower court ruling stood, and the lower court ruling was that Americans do not have the constitutional right to save their lives with unapproved drugs. And because of that, the Right to Try bill that just passed in Congress uh, started circulating among the states because the reaction to that court case was, hey, we really want this. So if we can't get it by suing the FDA, we're going to get it by passing it state by state. The Goldwater Institute was responsible for getting it passed, I think it's 40 states now. And of course, then Congress took hold of it and has passed it for the entire country. And what that, what that right to try law says and what the cancer patients were suing for was the right to go ahead and take a drug after they had safety testing in humans, but before the effectiveness testing. The problem with right to try, however, is that one of the caveats, one of the requirements that that law has is that the drug has to stay in the FDA's good graces and has to continue along the development path while it's being used by the right to try patient. And the problem with that is that most drug companies are going to be, be leery they're going to say, gee, if we go to this right-to-try patient and we work around the FDA, then the FDA may punish us by dragging their feet on our approvals. And so I think what's probably going to happen is that right-to-try will work for a few patients, but not for many, because most drug companies are going to be afraid to use it, and, and that's very sad. Now, coming along... Uh, through the Heartland Institute is a similar plan called Free to Choose Medicine. The advantage of Free to Choose Medicine is that once a drug enters the Free to Choose Medicine track, and it enters a little bit later than the right to try does, but once it enters the Free to Choose Medicine track, it's not necessary for it to stay in the FDA's good graces. 
In other words, it, it, it might never be approved. That's up to the company if it wants to keep in the FDA track or not. So it could, it could change, it could change the way things are done. And so that's, that's going to be coming along shortly. The book's been published and I know that the Heartland Institute is going to go ahead and start promoting that. Well, that's uh, some encouraging news on that front. We'll take a time out. Mary J. Ruart stays with us. And we are talking about her a new book, The Death or Death by Regulation. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, supplements and how they make drugs safer and how the FDA is turning foods into drugs. That sounds familiar. They're doing the same thing up here uh, with, with uh, Health Canada. Back with more of our conversation in a moment. The Conspiracy Show continues on the other side. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome back. Hey, I just wanted to remind you of an upcoming event uh, that I'll be a part of, the Alien Cosmic Expo, which is happening June 22nd, 23rd, 24th at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel. And that, of course, will feature a who's who of ufologists, Linda Moulton Howe, Stanton Friedman, Richard Dolan, Grant Cameron, Victor Vigiani, uh, and more. And uh, there'll be a roundtable on UFO Disclosure happening on the Sunday, the 24th at 1.30 p.m. I'll be moderating that. Again, that's at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel, uh, ACE, Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd to the 24th, 1.30 p.m. on the 24th. I'll be moderating a roundtable on UFO Disclosure. And if you want more information or tickets, you can go to aliencosmicexpo.com. Aliencosmicexpo.com, or you can go to the live events page at my website, strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet.ca. We are talking with Mary J. Ruart, PhD, uh, about the uh, the Food and Drug Administration and uh, regulations which prevent innovation. They drive up the cost of pharmaceuticals. Uh, and um, really, we're discussing how we have been robbed of a golden age of health and how we can reclaim it. Um, Mary, let's talk a little bit about, about supplements. Now, up here, Health Canada has totally revamped uh, the way uh, that uh, that uh, health supplements are regulated, uh, naturopathic medicine and, and alternative medicine really be coming under the spotlight of, of Health Canada. And obviously in many cases, you know, we need to be vigilant and, and, and regulate supplements as well. Um, what's going on with, with, with the FDA? Because they are now looking at many foods as drugs, which is something they're doing up here as well. Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, the FDA says that if you make a health claim for a food or supplement, that it becomes a drug. And, you know, the manufacturer has to make that claim. I should should point that out. So, for example, when um, walnut growers or cherry growers 
would put scientific papers on their website and say, hey, you know, the scientific paper shows that these components of cherries or these components of walnuts are healthy for you and, and can help you prevent cardiovascular disease or something like that. The FDA got very upset with them and sent them letters saying that because of the way they talked about their product, it was a drug, and that they needed to go through the same 13-year regulatory process that the average drug does. And, of course, you know, they, they can't afford to do that. It's ridiculous. So they stopped telling consumers about the health benefits of their foods. And this is true of supplements as well. You know, we talked about the B vitamin folic acid and how it prevented neural tube defects. This was published in the scientific literature, but the FDA would not allow manufacturers to talk about that without going through all of these 13 years of testing. So, you know, this is this has really hampered our use of prevention in this country and obviously in yours too, if, if it's kind of rippling out to the world, and, and it is. There's, there's a an international movement, Codex, that basically is trying yes. to limit the amount of supplements that you can take without a prescription. <laughs> so it's, and what's really, what's really terrible about this is that prior to the amendments, we were really getting to know that it was important not just to have the minimum daily requirement of supplements and vitamins and minerals, but it was important to get the optimal amount. And I'll tell you a little story about how I really came to grips with this personally, is that I was working in the pharmaceutical industry at a time when we didn't have all this genetic manipulation that we have today. And our rats were so healthy. And they were healthy because we had titrated their diet to make sure they had everything they needed. And how were we going to test for new drugs if we didn't have sick rats? <laughs> well, what we started doing is taking away a vitamin or two. And then our rats would get sick just like people do. And so, of course, all the researchers are going, okay, it's very important to have optimal nutrition if you want good health. And so, of course, we were very careful about what we ate. We took supplements, we exercised, didn't smoke, didn't drink very much, you know, all the things that that you would think about doing to stay healthy. It was interesting because uh, the medical doctors in the, in the company, for the most part, there were exceptions, of course, didn't realize this. And so they didn't take supplements. They, they didn't exercise and do all the things that we <laughs> made sure our rats did. <laughs> so, you know, they, they got sick more often. And I think it's very important to realize that we were right on the cusp of putting out this information to the American public, which is why I say how we were robbed of the golden age of health. There was a lot happening in the early 60s, just about the time these amendments were passed. And a lot of it just got buried because of the amendments and because of the kinds of things that the FDA did with the diamond or the walnut manufacturers and the cherry manufacturers. And I was thinking of diamond walnuts when I said that because um, diamond actually got after the FDA sent the warning letter, and it had to pay out quite a bit of money on, on the grounds that it was fraudulently advertising their product as a food instead of a drug. Oh, dear. 
so if you, for example, claim that blueberries, I mean, we know they're an anti, a powerful antioxidant, uh, that there are health benefits of a blueberry, that is now considered a drug and you have to put that through what? Some sort of a double blind study and yeah, pay for yeah, that if you're a blueberry manufacturer? So supposedly, yeah. So blueberry manufacturers can't say that. Now you and I could say it, but the blueberry manufacturers can't say that. And and here's what's happening because of this very irrational. Mary, I'm just pardon my interruption, Mary. We're going to break away here. This was a short segment. We'll come back and pick that up on the other side. Death by regulation. Mary J. Ruer, PhD, my guest here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Beaming across North America. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Mary J. Ruard stays with us for a few moments yet. And then in the uh, the second hour, we'll uh, delve into the history, the life and times of a fascinating uh, figure, John D., uh, who served in the court uh, of um, Queen Elizabeth I. He was a mathematician, an astrologer, really a scientific genius, uh, but also uh, was very much uh, steeped in the occult. In uh, fact, had devised, along with another individual we'll discuss, devised a mathematical formula for communicating with the angelic realm. That's uh, all upcoming in the second hour of The Conspiracy Show. Right now, Mary J. Ruart stays with us, as I say, and we're talking about the the Food and Drug Administration and how their regulations uh, has really uh, prevented life-saving information from coming forward. It has, uh, it has um, uh, obviously enriched pharmaceutical companies. Um, it has caused millions and millions of lives. It has uh, slowed innovation and, um, uh, well, stifled innovation, as I say, things like cancer treatments. And, uh, well, the cost of these amendments just almost incalculable. Um, we were talking about foods being uh, basically categorized as drugs. Um, so the interesting thing, though, is that often these drug companies will turn around and they will, uh, they will sort of synthesize the active ingredients in a certain natural food. Uh, and... I mean, it's it's you know the the hypocrisy is just ridiculous, wouldn't you say? They have a choice though with the way the amendments are structured because if they they have to tweak something chemically to get a patent. For example, let's take fish oil. You know, there's a really good example of a very important nutritional supplement. So what the drug companies did was they put an extra chemical group on the active ingredient in fish oil, and they did that because then they could get a patent. So two companies did that, and then they went through the development process. And now they are the only fish oil companies that can go to doctors legally and tell them, oh, our fish oil is the only one approved by, only ones approved by the FDA, and, you know, you can take it for this, that, and the other thing. Well, as it turns out, there's a over-the-counter fish oil on the market that has even better purity 
send these prescription fish oils, but because that fish oil hasn't gone through the regulatory process, the person who sells that cannot go to the doctors and say, hey, there's fewer PCBs in this fish oil. This is what your your uh, patient should be taking <laughs> because it's against the law because it hasn't gone through all the regulatory process. And, of course, that prescription fish oil costs a lot more than over-the-counter fish oil does. In fact, my sister uh, was was eligible for prescription fish oil, so she priced it out, and it turned out that her copay would be almost as much, just her copay would be almost as much as what she was paying for the highest quality over-the-counter fish oil. So, you know, it, we're, we're increasing the price of things totally needlessly, by putting them through this process, but that's what the FDA now requires if you want to make a health claim for a food. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about stem cell research because I am hearing absolutely remarkable news on this front uh, and and yeah. how stem cell uh, therapy is being used um, in everything from Parkinson's to cerebral palsy. Uh, I mean, the news is, is absolutely exciting. Uh, but talk to me how, again, how these amendments are stifling innovation when it comes to stem cell, stem cell research. Yes, well, they are. You know, there was a doctor in Colorado, Dr. Centeno, Christopher Centeno, who's probably at the top of the field in the U.S. And what he found is that you know, he was treating athletes with stem cells, and he would take them out of their body, either from bone marrow, I think that was his preferred, or from fat cells, which some uh, other doctors do, and then inject them into the, the knee or wherever, you know, the patient needed them. But what Dr. Centeno found is that if he took the stem cells and grew them for a week, you know, in a test tube, basically, and then injected them back, that the patient would heal much faster. But the FDA said, hey, if you inject the stem cells the same day you take them out, that's medical practice. But if you grow them in a test tube first and then put them back in the same person, well, that's a drug. And now you have to go through this 13 years of regulatory processing before you can do it. And so uh, Dr. Santeno, uh, of course, has kept his... Um, his office in Colorado, he's licensed out other offices, but if you want to get the best stem cell treatment where he grows up the stem cells for a week, you have to go to the Caribbean to do that because he had to move it offshore because of the FDA. What are the, what are the costs to, the overall cost to, to health care? Obviously, health care, social Social Security are two of the biggest expenditures for the for the federal government. Um, That's right. Do you are you able to, to put a price tag on that regulations cost the U.S. economy or add to the cost of health care overall? Yes, I think you can. And you know, we spend at least in the U.S. we spend about ten percent of our health care dollars on new drugs. But the thing about new drugs is they generally save money. So, for example, when the first anti-ulcer drug, Tagamet, came out, it was very expensive. This is, you know, back in the, I want to say the, the 80s. It cost about $1,000 a year, and you probably had to take it for two years. But it was a better choice than a $25,000 surgery, which was the 
state-of-the-art back then, you know, ulcer surgery, and you didn't have to go in the hospital and take off of work and all the other things that you do when you have surgery. So it really saved not only hospitalization, it saved a person from all the trauma of the surgery and lost work time and things of that nature. So on average, I think every dollar, even these dollars that we spend on pharmaceuticals that are way overpriced because of the regulations, even then we save about $3 for every dollar we spend um, you know, on other medical costs when we take a drug. So it's, it's much better if you can take a drug and then have a surgery or hospitalization. So drugs actually save money, but what we're doing is because it's costing so much these days to get a new drug through the market, we aren't developing drugs that we could, you know, like, like the liver disease example I gave you earlier. We aren't developing these drugs, and so people are still paying high health care costs when they might not need to. We just have a few moments, Mary, but give me your your elevator pitch on how you would like to see the FDA approval system change uh, in order to bring innovative drugs to the market sooner. Well, I'd like to say all we need to do is get rid of the amendments, but because the FDA has gone to court so many times, these amendments are almost part of case law. So really the only way to go, I think, is to take the approval power away from the FDA and turn it into a certifying agency. And, you know, other certifying agencies will come forward, too. In fact, some of the consumer groups have been very, very good at predicting which drugs will work. Uh, the Abigail Alliance, for example, has predicted uh, years before the FDA approved these 40 cancer drugs that they would be approved and that they were very effective. So if a consumer group can do that, obviously a group that was, you know, full of scientists trying to certify the drug is going to do a much better job. So people who want to listen to the FDA and wait for the FDA, they could do that if the FDA was a certifying agency. And when it gave its seal of approval, then they could take the drugs. But people who couldn't wait because they're dying or because their condition is such they think it's worth the risk, they could take drugs at any stage in the, in the process. And, of course, uh, many of them would rely on the certification agencies that would spring up and, and really are in place now to some extent uh, if the FDA approval was not necessary for marketing. I don't know if this is possible to answer, but I mean, how, how, would, the, how would things be different if we didn't have those amendments? Would we have, do you think by now, let's say a cure for a uh, for Lou Gehrig's disease, would we have a cure for Parkinson's disease or even some cancers? I think cancers would be very different. Cancer treatment would be very different today because one of the things the FDA has been very aggressive about is going after medical doctors who, in treating their patients, have figured out something that they think is going to work. Um, there's a there's a doctor in Houston. Um, Dr. Brzezinski, who's been hauled into court several times by the FDA, even when he was complying with their protocols, and you know he was he was used. He, what he found basically is that there was a substance in uh, the urine of healthy patients that the cancer patients didn't have, and so he was using that to treat his patients, and you know he was making it in the laboratory, and and he, you know, he was having great success, but. The FDA has 
hauled him into court so many times. He's, you know, he's really in a difficult place financially because it's very expensive to fight the FDA. And, and they've, they've done that with many, many medical doctors who think they have something new for cancer. So I think one of the big things that would be different is cancer. Mary, uh, a real pleasure meeting you. Thank you for spending some time. I hope we can do this again. Death by yes. Regulation. Where do we get the Where do we get the book? Well, of course, you can get it on Amazon, or you can go to my website, ruart.com. R u w a r t dot com. Thank you so much, Mary. And thank you. When we come back, Jason Louve, John D, and the Empire of Angels, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And hello to all of you listening in listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Howdy to all of you catching the Conspiracy Show on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Those of you who take the show with you on your mobile device with the Zoomer Radio or the Conspiracy Show apps, both of which are free downloads. And of course, those of you watching the live YouTube stream, uh, please visit the YouTube channel and hit the sub button if you would. However and wherever you're listening and watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Jason Louvre is standing by with a fascinating history of Dr. John D, Queen Elizabeth I's court advisor and astrologer, who also worked out a mathematical formula for communicating with angels. Uh, we'll look into that in just a moment. Hey, have you checked out my new podcasts yet? Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited drops three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and if you like poking around in the uh, the strange corners of rock and roll i think you're going to enjoy the rock and roll twilight zone the rock and roll twilight zone new episodes drop every wednesday at midnight 12 a.m. eastern and it's part of the jericho network in association with westwood 1 just google it it's it's everywhere the rock and roll twilight zone uh, this hour as i say we're going to delve into the life and times of a most fascinating historical figure a man at the center of the occult roots of the modern world dr john d was Queen Elizabeth I's court advisor and astrologer. He was the foremost scientific genius of the 16th century, laying the foundation for modern science. He actively promoted mathematics and astronomy, as well as made advances in navigation and optics that helped elevate England to the foremost imperial power in the world. He was centuries ahead of his time. His theoretical work included the concept of light speed, 
and prototypes for telescopes and solar panels. Dr. D was the original 007, his crown-given moniker. He even invented the idea of a British empire, envisioning fledgling America as the new Atlantis, with himself playing the part of Merlin and Elizabeth as Arthur. But as Jason Louv will explain, D was suppressed from mainstream history because he spent the second half of his career delving or developing a method for contacting angels. After a brilliant ascent from star student at Cambridge to scientific advisor to the Queen, Dee, with the help of a disreputable criminal psychic named Edward Kelly, devoted 10 years to communing with the angels and archangels of God. We'll uh, get into that right now. Here's the book, John Dee and the Empire of the Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. Jason, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Is it Louvre? Yes, Louvre, like the museum. Wonderful. How appropriate. So, this is a a fascinating character, to be sure. First of all, he came from fairly modest beginnings, I understand. How did he end up in the court of Queen Elizabeth I? Well, yes, John John Dee, of course, was perhaps the greatest scientific genius of the 16th century, and he did come from modest means. He was born into uh, a family that only had small connections to British court. His father was a gentleman sower to the king, a textile merchant. Chandi was recognized at a very early age as being a mathematical genius, and that meant that the world of higher education really opened up to him, first in England and then in the Netherlands, where he continued his studies into mathematics and the occult the really exciting topics of that day and, and the early early science. Uh, because of his advanced knowledge, knowledge that was more advanced than anyone in England at that time, uh, Dee became a hot commodity, first in Europe, where the kings and kings and emperors vied for his attention and made him great and very lucrative offers to come work for them. Uh, after he completed his education and became one of the most sought-after lecturers in Europe. But because Dee was a patriot and fully loyal to England, he decided to come back to England instead. And although he wasn't treated very well in England, that's how he found his way to becoming the chief scientific and astrological advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, in which capacity he was able to have a profound and tremendous impact on world history. I believe you made the comparison in your book to uh, Dr. D being sort of the the Rand Corporation of the of his day. Explain that. Well, that's that's actually the NSA made that comparison in in the 1960s ah. when they were when they were analyzing D's case. D, of course, has been a subject of fascination to the intelligence community, both the NSA and the CIA. Because he's one of the person, he's one of the people that created the world intelligence community, along with Sir Francis Walsingham. He founded what we now know as MI5 and MI6, in which his code name was 007, uh, as Elizabeth called him. He was the original James Bond. Uh, but that's fascinating. Yeah, they made that made that comparison because D was a guy who knew everything and made it his job to know everything for the Queen. 
um, and to uh, pursue advanced scientific knowledge, advanced knowledge of espionage and cryptography and also the occult, because England at this time was engaged in a Cold War with Spain, and there was a war at hand to control the New World and then to control the entire world. And he was on the front lines of that war. And, um, of course, that's why, that's why uh, he's been a, a, one, of, one of the many reasons why he's been a subject of fascination to historians as well as people like the NSA and the CIA. Right. Just back to his scientific developments for a moment. The idea that he was playing around with the concept of, of light speed. Uh, I mean, when did the sort of our modern understanding of light speed begin? Did it begin with him or was he really like centuries ahead of his time on this one? Oh, he was way ahead of his time. Um, yeah, the, the modern conception of light speed starts in the 19th century and then and then uh, uh, increases with Einstein and, and 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 continuing on into the future. Uh, but Dee was obsessed with light. He was obsessed with the, the field of optics. And he was obsessed with light not only for the reason of making scientific calculations, but also navigational calculations. He was, of course, the person who coined the phrase British Empire and made it possible with his optical science for a British Empire to happen. And, of course... He uh, was interested in optics because he wanted to use light itself to tap into the spirit world and direct perception and the ability to see God and his angels. And for that reason, we don't get to hear about D very much in high school <laughs> because he's just a little bit right, too, right. too out there, even now. And we'll we'll uh, we'll definitely circle back to that because uh, there's much to chew on there. But back to the you mentioned his work with optics really helped launch or create the British Empire. Explain, give me an example. Well, he it wasn't exactly his work. Well, this is how it happened. D really believed that England, which at this time was an impoverished, developing nation, should be. Uh, ahead in the world race. And he coined the phrase British Empire and believed that uh, England should have claim to the New World. But of course, he said that the reason that he came up with this idea was that an angel told him and gave him the phrase British Empire in an occult scrying session. A scrying session is the use of various trance states to go into trance and speak to the unconscious or other planes of reality, depending on what you believe. Um, Sometimes using mirror mirrors or or reflect reflecting pools, uh, crystal pieces of crystal or crystal balls. That's right. Right. So okay. he um, um, now, but however, he also uh, invented something called the paradoxical compass and made lots of tables of optical calculations, uh, astronomical calculations that allowed. England to uh, leverage naval power. It was Dee's insight that England could become a naval empire that really distinguished. Uh, well, that was the that was the killer idea. That was the that was the idea that allowed England to become a world superpower. Without that insight of Dee, that it could become a naval superpower, uh, England would have um, you know it would have fallen far behind, and the world would not be what it is today. It's fascinating. This he's almost like. Uh, Albert Einstein and Yuri Geller sort of all rolled into one. Uh, and yet, as you say, 
sort of the two academic approaches to studying Dr. D, uh, one solely focuses on his scientific uh, and uh, sort of intelligence gathering expertise, uh, won't go, won't delve into the occult because I guess they feel that would discredit themselves. Uh, and then the other uh, focuses us almost exclusively on the occult without the sort of the, the scientific context. So yours is really kind of a meeting of the two. Uh, to your, to your uh, mind, is this the first time uh, anyone has approached the history of Dr. Dr. John D sort of with a balance of the two, the occult and the scientific coming together? Well, no, it's not the first time because it's been done in the academic world a few times, particularly by Nicholas Cluley and then Deborah Harkness, who's now a best-selling fiction author. But uh, it ha- I will say that I don't think it's been done in a, in a popular book. It's, it's been done in academic writing, but it hasn't been done in a book that drew the whole story together for, for everyone you know, to see. And for me, putting those two things back together and particularly for me, having knowledge of a lot of the things that he, that he was interested in, which is not usually the case with people who write about D. For me, it was like splitting the atom in reverse. It was putting those two sides of D back together, the scientific side and the magical side, um, allows the reader to get a real glimpse of what the world actually is and what the real history of the world is, not the history of the world that was sold. The, to get an understanding of, of how much world history is shaped by not just faith and belief, but visions and people's contact with altered states of consciousness or greater human intelligences, if you will. Now, of course, we're going out on a limb there, and that's not something that any mainstream academic, that's the statement I just made, no mainstream academic would touch that with wow. a hundred foot pole. <laughs> Indeed, Jason, we will like go me around. Yes, and thank God for that. Jason, we will go out on that limb and we'll delve into the the magic uh, behind Dr. John D. when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. Follow the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Jason Louve is with us. He's the author of John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. Uh, so how did... Uh, this advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, how did he manage to hook up with this disreputable criminal psychic named Edward Kelly? Well, he is a guy who was fascinated with the occult for decades, for his entire life, but he could never get it to work. And even into his, his, his early 50s, he had never been able to actually properly see anything or, or get a ritual to work or contact an angel. And it was a point of great um, uh, sorrow for him. He it, it drove him so crazy that he almost was. He contemplated suicide at one point because he figured that if he wasn't able to see angels, then that must mean that he wasn't a very good person. Um, but that situation changed very quickly when he started working with scryers. Scryers are, are psychics, and they were fairly common in, in Elizabethan England. 
he auditioned a number of psychics uh, to work with and finally uh, set upon a man named Edward Kelly, who was half his age. He was 25, uh, and, and, and yes, quite disreputable. He came, he brought with him a real um, miasma of scandal and, and accusations of theft and necromancy and all kinds of devilish behavior. But he could do it. He had the real, real psychic talent. And uh, together, these two men formed a working partnership for about a decade, where Dee would do magical rituals and pray at length, uh, asking God to manifest his angels and for the angels to bring them higher wisdom and understanding. And Kelly would fill in as the psychic and would go into a trance state and tell Dee what he was seeing, which Dee would then write down. And working in that way over the course of many years, they were able to put together over a thousand pages of written material of some of the most profound, shocking, compelling, and, and quite frankly, convincing records of contact with extra-dimensional beings that uh, have ever been written in human history. What, what, to your mind, makes them most compelling and convincing that they were, in fact, in communication with angels? Well, just to unpack that, when we say in communication with angels, I mean, that right there is a tricky topic because we don't really know what that means. And even if it's just they're talking to their unconscious or, or they're talking to some part of the human mind that is not normally accessible by the average individual, um, you know, we can debate what was actually going on, but it's hard to say, it's hard to read that stuff and say that something wasn't happening. And the reason that it's so convincing is because, first of all, the language is so beautiful. And, and coming from somebody with really no, no education, I mean, and the records are full of um, what looks like math equations or just huge amounts of mathematical information. It's not what you get with, with normal channeling where the average psychic or channeler will deliver very flattering messages that make them sound very good or, or make the person that they're channeling that message for sound very good. There's none of that in Dee and Kelly. What, what they're getting was schematics. It was schematics to build something schematics to build a device to further contact angels. It was uh, the Enochian language itself, which is the full language that they were told that angels speak with and that mankind spoke from before the fall from the Garden of Eden. And that's a full language that linguists have analyzed, including in the 1970s, uh, very closely analyzed it and found many characteristics of an actual language that were inexplicable. Now, how somebody can, you know, how somebody can just channel a new language with uh, linguistic coherence and hints of grammar and syntax just off the top of their head is, is beyond me. You know, if you can answer that, you know, <laughs> I'm all ears. Right. No. Now, why did the, again, the, the language of the angels and supposedly the, ang the, the, the language spoken by Adam and Eve in the garden prior to the fall of humanity, how did they settle upon the name Enochian, as in Enoch uh, from, well, it's part of the Apocrypha, it's not part of the Old Testament, but it's often referred to. Is it the same, one and the same, the, the, uh, the book of Enoch? It's actually not, and this is a, a really critically important point, in that Dee and Kelly only referred to the language as angelic, or at one point they call it the Adamic uh, language. Uh, Enochian is a phrase that was tacked onto their sessions about one or two hundred years later by later historians and magicians who were looking at their work. 
And at that time, Enochian simply meant really old, as in antediluvian, before the flood. Ah. So it was a linguistic flourish that's confused people for, for centuries since. Uh, and uh, what that means, of course, is that the, the quote-unquote Enochian sessions don't have anything to do at all with the apocry- apocryphal Book of Enoch outside of a few uh, tangential c- connections. So this is, a, this is a point that often confuses people who are new to the subject. It would be better to just call it angelic. Right. Okay. And what what was the sort of the underlying message uh, from the angelic realm to uh, D and and Kelly? Uh, were they given sort of instructions or marching orders? What did the angels want from D, and what was D asking of the angels? Well, Dee was asking for wisdom and understanding and higher scientific knowledge, but the message that came back was that humanity was fallen, that the angels were furious with the state of Europe and the state of how far people had fallen from the truth, particularly due to the Protestant Reformation. They, they weren't particularly fond of either the Protestants or the Catholics, but most of all that they were furious that uh, people were so fallen into sin and degradation and that the Church itself was splitting. Uh, the message of the angels was very simple. It was that the end of the world is at hand, and that Dee and Kelly were to first channel the Enochian magical system so that individuals could use it to make their own contact with the angelic realms and repair their fallen nature. They were then to go to Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor, and convert him to the cause, um, and also use Elizabeth as um, what they really wanted was the, a new religion and a new world order. They wanted there to be one terrestrial empire underneath Elizabeth and one terrestrial religion that would unite all warring factions of religion, including Protestantism, Catholicism, Judaism, Paganism, and even Islam. It would be ministered to by the angels. Their message, of course, was that this was apocalyptic. We are in the, the process of the apocalypse, but Dean Kelly and many, many people since then have made the error of assuming that this was meant to be a literal date. There is no literal date for the apocalypse. The apocalypse is an ongoing process. It it manifests over the course of hundreds of years and on a very long and extended timeline that is much, uh, much, much longer than a human lifespan. So we don't, we only get to see our little piece of it. But this is essentially what the angel said. It's the, it's the end of the world. Humanity must repent. And we're here to give them a direct means to do that in the form of Enochian magic. So if the the disease was the fall of humanity and his sinful state, and the cure was the the second coming um, vis-a-vis the apocalypse, did did Dr. D believe that it was his role to hasten the second coming by bringing about an apocalypse? Yes, he did, although I'm not sure he fully understood what that actually meant. Uh, you know, a lot has happened since this, the 1600s that's helped elucidate a lot of this. Um, but this was the message of the angels. The angels were hastening the apocalypse and the second coming. But what is the apocalypse? You know, the, the apocalypse in Greek means unveiling. It's the, the uncovering of the true nature of consciousness. And what is the second coming? You know, the second coming and coming is the awakening of the Christ consciousness, or whatever you want to call it, in all of us, 
Uh, it's always the mistake that people make when they make these things too literal, and it's a literal event. But just because something is not literal, as in it's like an action movie that happens, uh, doesn't mean it's real. Not real. It doesn't mean it's not real. It's it's even more real. You know, it's it's the the apocalypse and the second coming, or something that happened every moment, every waking and sleeping moment of our lives in in every human hearted soul. Well, here we have uh, Dr. D at the center of the court of Queen Elizabeth I, who is the head of the the new Church of England. Uh, I can't imagine, you know, that this would go over well with with um, you know the church the church leaders, someone in the center of the court. Uh, partaking in these occult practices, gazing into crystal balls, and so forth. Uh, was this? I'm guessing this was all done uh, surreptitiously. Uh, to some extent, but Elizabeth was very aware of it. The court was aware huh? of it, and you have to remember that at this time, uh, everyone in Elizabethan England was was engaged in magic in some way or or another, including people in court. And uh, Dee, had, of course, had been paid by the Secretary of State to go look for uh, manuals of demonic conjuration and that type of thing in Europe to use in the war effort and to use in the espionage effort. Um, and, and frankly, that is not something that's ever changed. It's just something that gets swept under the carpet and, and removed from the light of day and the, the mass media. And that's, of course, why, why these things are called occults, because they're hidden. I don't mean this in a conspiratorial sense, but it's it's just a matter of historical record that heads of state have been in, and people of power have been involved in this type of thing since the beginning of history, even up to our modern day, even up to you know I mean a very very you know a very clear modern example. Just a few years ago, the head of um, the South Korean government had to step down in a scandal in which it was revealed that she was receiving most of her. Um, guidance on running the government from a council of seven shamans who were kind of a secret society that were running things from behind the scenes. So it's not like this stuff is just the, the province of fiction and conspiracy literature. It just it happens to be part of how the world works, which is one of the, the things that I've tried to really cast some light on with this book, because I think that people deserve to... we People deserve an apocalypse <laughs> in the sense of, of <laughs> unveiling... People deserve to have the veils pulled back and see what's on the other end of their fork. Right. So, so to what extent uh, were Dee's communications with the angelic realm and, 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 and his spirit diaries, to what extent did that inform Queen Elizabeth I's, let's say, her, her foreign policy? Um, outside of the, well, the major way in which it informed foreign policy was, I mean, he wrote a five-volume set of information on how to build the British Empire, which is called the General and Rare Memorials, and he presented that information to court, and that became the blueprint uh, from which the British Empire was built, not by Dee, but by, by, but by Sir Walter Raleigh and, and others. Um, but that was before he, that was before the angelic scrying really happened. So, but there were a lot of overlaps. There was a tremendous amount of interest in alchemy, not just from Elizabeth, but in all all the European monarchs, uh, who were, uh, uh, you know, very much competing to retain uh, the, and even more so, Edward Kelly, to produce gold for them, uh, because Edward Kelly had convinced them that he could do it, although he couldn't. 
because no one had, as far as we know, ever figured out how to do it. Um, but there was an occult arms race, you know, and they, this, the, the intersections, these, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, these things have to be brought back together. They can't be separated out and you could just say over here, oh, well, that's the, the science part. That's the empire part. That's the safe and sanitized version. And then over here, we're just going to put the occult part. Well, that's not how history works. You know, it's all, it's, that's not how human life works. You know, human life is a jumble of all kinds of strange things. And, and the history is no different. I, I love that phrase you just uh, laid on us, an occult arms race. Explain. What do you mean by that? Well, the biggest one was uh, the, uh, all of the uh, kingdoms and, and empires in Europe at this time were in a dead heat arms race to solve the riddle of alchemy because whoever could figure out how to produce gold on demand first, of course, would have the economic advantage over all the other countries. Now, this never happened, but ironically, Dee, who was an alchemist in the true sense, in that he understood that alchemy was a metaphor of the perfection of the human soul, uh, Dee provided the true secret of riches to uh, England, which was colonizing the New World. Um, but uh, beyond just that, there were you know, sorcerers and magicians tapped and employed by uh, many different uh, groups at this time, of course, at he with England, but then in France, they had Nostra, on the Catholic side, there was Nostradamus. Um, and then there were, there were uh, many, many Catholic conjurers or sorcerers that were employed uh, in the Catholic efforts to undermine the Protestant uh, kingdom, the new Protestant kingdom of, of England. And, and that got real down and dirty. It wasn't just flights of fancy and, and, and high philosophy and academia. I mean, it was people making voodoo dolls, people cursing each other, people using oh, I really love it. nasty forms of magic to really... Jason, let me just other. jump in here. Pardon my interruption. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, drill down a little bit on this occultic arms race. Jason Louvre, John D. and the Empire of Angels right here on The Conspiracy Show. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to redefine reality. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome back. I'll get back to my conversation with Jason Louv, author of John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. Uh, in just a moment, speaking about occult, I want to tell you about another event I'm involved in coming later this summer. It's called Occulticon. Occulticon. And uh, it's taking place. It's a three-day event. You can camp overnight. And it's up in beautiful Holstein, Ontario. So if you know the greater Toronto area, just uh, think about traveling north on Highway 10, sort of north of Brampton, and uh, up on an, an escarpment, a beautiful campground called Mythwood, Mythwoods. And it's uh, an event grounds and camping grounds. And a Culticon will be held there over three days with all sorts of guest speakers and, um, and vendors and so forth. And I will be speaking there. Uh, on uh, the the 14th of July, uh, which is a Saturday. And I'll be speaking under the big lecture tent at 1 o'clock and then at 3 o'clock 
I'll be part of a roundtable discussion on the paranormal. Again, that's Occulticon. And for more information and tickets, you can go to occulticon.ca. Occulticon.ca. Or uh, you can also go to the live events page at my website, strangeplanet.ca. Live events uh, page at strange, strange Planet. Uh, dot ca. All right, uh, back to uh, John, uh, Jason Louvre and uh, John D. and the Empire of Angels. We were talking about this uh, occult arms race across Europe, and um, I sort of uh, interrupted you. You were talking about um, a Catholic. Uh, did you describe them as Catholic sorcerers and so forth? I mean, <laughs> were, were they engaged in almost? Yeah. Yeah, that is a very, it's not something you hear very often, Catholic sorcerers. But, I mean, were they involved in, I mean, we're all familiar now with, with uh, the military's involvement in these remote viewing experiments. And so, did they have sort of something like that going on in the 16th century, sort of psychic spies? Yeah, I mean, frankly, that's what Dee and Kelly were. Uh, you know, and, and and I love that you bring that up because it, it's really not any different now than if you look at Operation Stargate and projects like you're referencing in, in the 20th century. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, governments are in the business of power. That's what they're about and maintaining power, and, and they will seek any advantage whatsoever to do so. So I don't think it's surprising at all that uh, at certain points of history and on in an ongoing sense you know everyone has looked to magic or the occult as a way to do that uh, now how successful it's been is, is you know that's another story but uh, you know i think it would be more shocking to it would be more shocking if they hadn't than if they had frankly i want to go back to the enochian language um because i'm, I'm wondering if there is corroborating evidence what was there contemporaneous examples of the Enochian language that that was being channeled from another source uh, so that that would tend to verify that this was actually happening, it was real? Do we have other people that were supposedly claiming they were downloading the same Enochian language? Actually, I'm, I'm so glad you, you, you asked that because, because yes, we do. And, and that's something that uh, it came up for me in the research uh, of the book. That I discovered that I've never seen any other writers talk about, including the academic writers who've analyzed he, um, A really um, shocking uh, example of that is Hildegard, uh, Hildegard of Bingen, who's a, a very, very famous Catholic um, uh, saint, and, or I'm not, I'm not quite sure if she's a saint. Uh, she might, she may be certainly a, saint, a mystic. But, uh, a mystic, yes. Yeah, a Catholic mystic who's in the Catholic Holy Orders and is very, very famous. Um, she channeled a language that she called the lingua ignotia, uh, which looks and sounds exactly like, or not exactly, but very, very close to the Enochian language. And this was about 200 years before Dean Kelly. Now, it would be easy to say, well, then, you know, maybe he drew inspiration from that. But as far as I know, he was not aware of it. He, you know, this information was kept fairly is hidden and secret within the Catholic holy orders and was not available to the public. So, um, so that for me, discovering that was, and, and realizing that nobody had ever written about that, uh, you know, you, you think that people would have pounced on that as, 
proof that there was some validity to this, but to, to my knowledge, nobody had ever clued into that fact. That's something that I bring up in the book. And when you, when you discover that type of thing, you can't help but feel shivers run up your back. I'm getting them now. That is absolutely fascinating. I mean, that is that is pretty close to contemporaneous, uh, you know, a couple hundred years um, before. And as you say, he had no knowledge, uh, as far as you can tell. And yet the two languages are eerily similar. Uh, now, what method do we know was Hildegard using uh, to, to tap into this angelic language? Well, uh, she was you know, a, a, a meditator in the Christian tradition, the quietist tradition, and was, was lived in a cloistered holy order, so spent long, long periods of time by herself uh, in silent retreats and in prayer for long periods of time. And, and anyone who's ever done anything like that in a sincere way, particularly in an extended way for long periods of time, knows that it gets you into very, very profound altered states of consciousness. Uh, sure, like quickly. almost like sensory deprivation, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jason, we'll take combined with the combined with the fervent prayer. Right. I will take another time out. This was a very short segment. We'll come and finish with uh, Jason Louv, John D, and the Empire of Angels, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Well, without question, the uh, the most fascinating figure from the Elizabethan era, uh, Dr. John D. And uh, Jason Louve is with us for a few moments yet. John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. Um, I want to talk about his angelic magic. Uh, just describe sort of what that entails, angelic magic. Uh, well, it's an ongoing process that involves it, it involves a lot of prayer and a lot of uh, change and evolution of the person engaging in the process. Uh, angelic magic is the ongoing process of somebody um, changing their nervous system to be able to capacitate that type of input from higher reality and then more or less acting as a conduit for it. So almost kind of a, a medical, a metaphorical alchemy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, the true true alchemy, of course, is not about turning lead into gold at all, uh, although there are parts of it that are related to that. Uh, true alchemy is the process of taking a standard, uh, unawakened, uh, sleeping human being and turning them into an enlightened sage. So it's very similar to the process of, for instance, in the Eastern traditions of uh, taking somebody for, and through a long process of meditation over many, many years and decades and into an enlightened sage or an enlightened Buddha. You know, magic is really the Western culture's version of, um, you know, what we see in Eastern Enlightenment traditions. It's, it's our tradition for achieving enlightenment. You know, in, in the East they have yoga and Buddhism. Here we have magic. Now, 
were D and Kelly uh, able to to make prophecies uh, in the same way that Nostradamus uh, did? For example, uh, were they able to uh, foretell the death of Queen Elizabeth I or the coming of the Spanish Armada? They did indeed. There were many uh, uh, predictions that were made by the angels that did come true, although there were lots that did not. And it's the same with Nostradamus, of course. And this touches on, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when we engage with the world of the occult and the spiritual, we have to look at them almost like an artist would. It's much more about the subtle metaphor and meaning and how meaning is constructed in somebody's life than it is about making specific predictions and that type of thing. Uh, it's very much about, um, you know, what it means to be alive rather than saying this event will happen on this and this and such and such date. But specifically with, with the Armada, um, of course, very famous, you know, the, um, the storm that came and, and I mean, was that seen, did, did the, the destruction of the Spanish Armada, uh, was, was D sort of given credit for that or how was that perceived the way that played out? He was, and it's, it's an amazing story. So, of course, the Spanish Armada in 1588 was when Spain sent all of their entire naval capabilities to wipe England off the face of the earth. It's, 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 it's something, it's like Elizabethan Star Wars. It's like, the, here comes the <laughs> Empire, like the Star Destroyers. So they're coming in over the, over the waves towards England, and D goes out. And of course, the angels, it was 1588, the angels had predicted the end of the world for 88 although they weren't clear about what that meant. Uh, so people thought that this was the end. It was, the end, you know, certainly it was going to be the end for England. And Dee went out into the harbor and looked out across the bay and made some quick calculations and realized that the way the weather was going meant that um, a storm was going to come up very, very soon, and it probably was going to be so severe of a storm that it would wipe out the Spanish Armada all on its own. So he quickly turned to... Um, the people in charge and said of the of the fleet and said hold back the English ships do not go out into the harbor to meet the Spanish Armada do not engage hold back the ships and they thought he was crazy because they said well no 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 the ships are going to come in and, and kill all of us we have to go out and meet them or they'll be right here and they'll be able to uh, uh, get to land and they'll be able to go through they'll be able to go through London killing everyone and so and he said no 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 just wait just wait so they did wait. And the storm clouds did come in, and the storms wiped out the entire Spanish Armada. And then the English fleet just went out to mop up uh, what was left. And it was one of the most resounding military defeats in world history. Um, and it is, of course, the, it was that event that spelled the end of Spain's advantage in the, the build-up to the Age of Empires. They would never recover from that defeat, and because of that reason, England was able to colonize much, much more of the New World than Spain did. And, uh, of course, he was credited with this. Uh, people said it was because God was on England's side. It must have been the great magic of Dr. D, and then he had conjured angels to or demons to make this happen, but it had just been a few scientific uh, observations. They must have likened him <laughs> to a god after that prediction, though. It must have certainly <laughs> elevated his status. I'll bet. They were pretty impressed. Although they did give the, they, they simply just said that it meant that it was proof that God was on England's side. You know, I think that was what was mostly on people's mind.
and and also that it proved to them that because it, it was like a uh, message to them, not just England, but the Protestant side of the religious war. You know, it seemed to be such a decisive victory that it seemed to be an act of God. How did John D? We just have a few moments uh, here for about four or five minutes. But how did John D? Uh, his work with angelic magic inform, uh, I guess, sort of the Hermetic orders, the Golden Dawn, later Aleister Crowley. Well, the Enochian magic that D transmitted really is the core of all of the occult movements that have come since. So Rosicrucianism, uh, perhaps Freemasonry. Um, and certainly the Golden Dawn and Thelema and things like that. It, it certainly had an influence, and Dee's work certainly had an influence on these things. Of course, these things are, are very uh, uh, different in their own right also, so it's not as simple as to say that it's all a branch of Enochian magic, but I, you can argue quite clearly that Enochian is at the core of certainly things like the Golden Dawn, certainly things like uh, Crowley's Thelema, and uh, therefore that it really is the what's been driving the show forward in terms of the the occult revivals that have swept through uh, Western culture in the last, uh, you know, in the last few decades and in the last few centuries. But but surely, I mean, Crowley had little time for for Christianity. Uh, Well, actually, he he did. He was a, Crowley was a diehard Christian to the end. He was just, uh, you know, he was he was an (laughs) anti-Christian. But he never got over his Christian conditioning, so he was, you know, he was just uh, acting out against Christianity his entire life, I think. Right. So, um, is there anything in in D or Kelly's angelic magic that involves, for example, uh, a summoning, um, you know, the the conjuring of of uh, angelic entities or demons and binding them, which is certainly something that Crowley dabbled in. Well, that, what you just described, is really core to a lot of traditional magical technology, uh, certainly before and after D. But D is quite different in that D's magic, quote-unquote, magical system had a lot more to do with mysticism and, and Christian mysticism and simple prayer. There wasn't a whole lot of structure to it, although a lot of structure did come later. Um, and certainly demons appeared in the angelic sessions, but they only appeared so that the angels could exercise them, and that was part of the purification process of Dee and Kelly, where you might argue they were shown their base and impure aspects and the, the, the ways in which they were under uh, the influence of less than sterling forces, and then, as, as, as most human beings are, you know, we're all a mixed bag. And uh, and then the angels were, you know, a lot of long sessions, long parts of the angelic sessions are the angels uh, driving out the demons from Dee and Kelly <laughs> and trying to purify right. them. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I'm just taking kind of a flyer on this one. But did did Dr. D form the basis for any of Shakespeare's characters? I mean, did, do we see D sort of popping up in any of Shakespeare's plays? He did. Uh, in fact, Prospero in The Tempest is directly based on John Dee, to our knowledge. Um, and The Tempest itself was, many have alleged, was written in collaboration between Dee and Shakespeare and other people who were involved in an effort to propagandize for 
the, colon, the colonization of the New World. If you read The Tempest in a certain light, you can very clearly see it was aimed at the British public to get them on board the idea of colonizing the New, the new World and planning that idea in people's imagination. Of course, Dee was very interested in this and very easily could have worked with Shakespeare or, or whatever person or group of people Shakespeare actually was to propagandize this. And, and, of course, we see the figure of Prospero is B. Fascinating. I was just taking a, a bit of a flyer on that. So, uh, do, by the way, I don't know if this is within your sort of your purview, but do you believe that Shakespeare was, in fact, the 17th Earl of Oxford? Uh, it is not within my purview, although I will say that I recently did. Uh, I have a podcast called Ultra Culture with Jason Lube. You can get it on iTunes and Stitcher and, and Google Play and all that. Uh, and I recently did an interview with my friend Alan Green, who specializes in the Shakespeare mystery and the overlaps of Shakespeare and John Dee. And we had a, a, about a 90-minute conversation just about that. And uh, so that's outside of my, my purview, but uh, I know people who know the answer. All right. I should mention your, some of your other books, uh, Generation Hex, Ultra Culture, and uh, The Psychic. Psychic Bible. The psych is it? Psychic, psychic Bible. Bible. Yeah, the psychic, psychic Bible. Bible. Yeah. Right, and uh, of course you run the high traffic site ultraculture.org, which you mentioned. Uh, you teach courses on magic and spirituality at magic.me, and um, uh, you've uh, written for many popular websites, including Boing Boing, Vice News, Motherboard, Esquire Online, and uh, a great delight meeting you, uh, Jason. Thank you for hanging out with us. Thank you so much for having me on. John D. and the Empire of Angels. All right, my thanks to Ian Robertson, Ryan White, Albert Vinzel. I'll be back next week uh, with a special tribute to the late Nils Hamron. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.